listeners, this episode turned out to be twice as long as a normal edition, so after we recorded it, we split it in two. Here's part one, in which Tim breaks down the history of why we're calling the current moment destructive unionism. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, Let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh I'm recording. One, One, two, two, three. three. Okay. Welcome to the Irish Passport Podcast Season 4 finale. Yes, a Season 4 finale, uh, believe it or not. We've managed to make it through to the end of another season, somehow or another. So thanks to all our listeners and patrons who supported us along the way to get us here. So loads of listeners have been writing in um, to ask us for an update on Brexit and stuff, um, seeing as the transition period finally came Mm. to an end and the whole thing is finalised with the deal and everything like that. And we'll be looking at some of the details of how it all ended in this episode. Um, But we also want to look at the current state of politics between Britain and Ireland in a wider context and think about what does this all mean for the future of the islands? Yeah, something that is commented on all the time at the moment is how Brexit might be affecting the future of Northern Ireland's place in the United Kingdom. And today we're going to be looking at how what is happening right now could be seen as the latest chapter in a long and pretty tumultuous history of that union. So we'll look at some of the fallouts that have been dominating headlines lately in Ireland, Northern Ireland and Scotland and the rest of Britain over the last few weeks. And we'll hear exactly how the Irish government is going to pay for people in Northern Ireland to keep some of the things they had as part of the EU. So, for example, health insurance cover for the continent and also the ability to participate in the popular Erasmus exchange program. Mm. Here's TD Neil Richmond explaining this. The European Commission has agreed to it. The Northern Irish institutions, because it's not just universities where Erasmus Plus, they'll register with the Higher Education Authority and they'll be able to access Erasmus Plus and partner with another member state institution through Ireland, through the Higher Higher Education Authority, the Republic. It won't be any different. They don't need to have an Irish passport, a European passport. It's open to all, just as it was before. But to get an idea of how the current political moment fits in to the broader spectrum of British and Irish history, Tim, I wanted to look at something that happened about 120 years ago but which has some very real resonance in the current moment. And that's something called constructive unionism. Right, yeah. So constructive unionism was a political strategy used by the British government in Ireland uh, between around the 1880s and about 1906. And as you can see from those dates straight away, it was implemented just before the Irish Revolution broke out. And in many ways, it's been seen as like a last-ditch attempt just to get Irish people on board with being part of the United Kingdom. Um, The strategy of constructive unionism was to focus on making ordinary Irish people's lives better, as crazy as that thought might seem, um, (laughs) in the hopes that they might just finally come to like respect Westminster rule or think of it as a good thing and therefore move away from nationalist politics, which were on the rise at that point. What's so interesting right now about that history is like the current moment is like a mirror image of it in that political decisions Mm. made in Westminster are very concretely making people's lives worse. Um, And it seems like quite a gamble to make at the moment when political movements in favour of breaking away from the union have quite a lot of momentum, particularly in Scotland, but not only in Scotland, also in Northern Ireland and Wales. Nevertheless, the attitude from London, it seems to be one of like tone deaf indifference and ideological Mm. recklessness, which all makes for a pretty precarious moment for the union. And I would argue that you could end up calling this period of history destructive unionism. So, Mm -hmm. Tim, to explain this analogy of mine, you're going to break it all down for us. (laughs) What exactly was constructive unionism? Yeah, right. This well, this whole thing is so interesting. And as usual, I'm going to drag us much back further in history, because I think we need to go back and look at the origins of the union itself uh, to really understand what's at stake here. Okay. Um, but to get us in the mood first, uh, Naomi, I want to, I want you to picture a public structure 
that practically everyone in Ireland is familiar with and that you're definitely familiar with um, as a journalist, and that is Government Buildings on Dublin's Merrion Street. Yes, so we always see this building on the news in Ireland because this is uh, the home for the Department of the Taoiseach, uh, Department of Finance, uh, or Department of Finance, as it's often said, and loads of other government offices. It's part of this big government complex um, just south of the River Liffey in Dublin, in the centre of the city, and it clu- includes Leinster House. Yeah, right. So the part of the complex that we call government buildings is this very, very, very big, imposing rectangular structure with very impressive Edwardian facade. Like, it really would catch your eye if you're walking down the street. Um, It's clad all over in gleaming white stone, and it's fronted with, you know, very tall pillars at the entrance to quite a grand courtyard, which really makes it stand out in the Dublin streetscape. Um, Naomi, do you know what that building was originally built for? I have a vague notion that it was mm-hmm. supposed to be a university. Right, yes. Um, well, more or less. It, w- it was originally built to house the Royal College of Science. It was actually opened by Britain's King George uh, when it was completed in 1911. So you can already see kind of an investment, you know, um, in, in public relations <laughs> going into this building. Uh-huh. Uh, so why why am I talking about it? I don't know, Tim. Why are you talking about it? Tell us. <laughs> this building was actually the very last major public building erected in Ireland under British rule. It's like the the end of the Union. Yeah, right. It's kind of symbolic of the end of the Union, not only because of this status as the last public building under British rule, but also because it would almost immediately be taken over by the independent Irish state. But it, it is also symbolic of this major political strategy of constructive unionism, part of the aim to rehabilitate the Union in the eyes of Irish people. This strategy was also known as killing home rule with kindness. So one of the reasons why this science college was so conspicuously grand and visually impressive and, you know, physically big enough to house a government um, was to show the Irish, you know, quite how beneficial the union was for them. Okay, so it's like, look at these grand, beautiful buildings that we give you Mm -hmm. and these educational resources and so on. It's like the grandeur of it. Uh, This is the empire, you know, that you're part of. So basically, it's like reminding the Irish that the UK had loads of money, you know, and that it could potentially be spent in Ireland and they'd be Mm. better off remaining in the union to to benefit from this kind of investment and development. Yeah, absolutely. And the constructive unionism strategies went way further than that. From the 1870s, 1880s onwards, there was a whole series of reforms put in place to improve the popular image of the UK in Ireland. Okay, so just to go further, you said you it was really important to understand the union and the roots of the union that we're actually talking about um, mm. and Ireland's place in it to understand exactly what's going on here. So that when we talk about the union at this point, the point of constructive unionism, what it was, was this was the union that was created when Ireland was inducted into the United Kingdom as a home territory, which actually only happened in 1801, right? Yeah, exactly. So the original Act of Union was actually with Scotland back in 1707, and that united the kingdoms of England and Scotland as the United Kingdom. Uh, But Ireland remained outside that United Kingdom territory for another century, Um, in, In practice, during the 18th century, Ireland essentially existed like a weird kind of colonial possession. Like it had been thoroughly colonized, so it was subordinate to British rule, but it had its own colonial parliament that was separate from Westminster, and it was the country was presided over by this Protestant elite uh, known as the Ascendancy, which we've talked about loads. So why was it that this changed? Like a century on from the original Act of Union with Scotland, why did it become necessary or supported to extend that union to induct Ireland into it. it? There's no other way to put it, but that like at the turn of the 19th century, the UK just completely and utterly freaked out. Like they freaked out about Ireland. Um, the whole colonial project there was just falling apart uh-huh. at the seams, like really badly. Um, and in fact, like Ireland at this stage was like a monster, like a Britain was just not in control of it anymore. And that's at the origin of this act of union. So it was a bit of a knee jerk reaction or emergency measure um, it wasn't mm. 
Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. So, like, let me walk you through it. Um, so, for about a century leading up to the Act of Union, uh, Ireland had been controlled, or the people of Ireland had been controlled, primarily through divide-and-rule tactics. So, a set of sectarian legislation known as the Penal Laws that worked to restrict civil rights according to your religion and to keep people kind of infighting all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, those penal laws were designed to achieve three things, really. Uh, A, to permanently keep the Catholic majority out of political power, so they couldn't vote or join the government or anything. Uh, B, to ensure that the Protestant elite remained in total control all the time, even though they were really a very small minority. And uh, C, to maintain this factional division between the different cultures on the island, because if they joined forces, they could actually represent quite a threat to Britain. We'll see why in a minute. (laughs) Stay with me. Um, By the 1790s, that system was wearing really thin. Uh, mostly because somehow <laughs> Westminster had managed to like piss off every single one of those factions. So <laughs> they were ending up kind of with more in common in many ways than they had, you know, dividing them. So let's go through these factions. Uh-huh. The Protestant ascendancy, of course. Then you have the dissenting Protestants who were a big population, um, mostly living in Ulster, and they were a major economic force as well. What is what is a dissenting Protestant? What is the dissenting Protestant? Good question. The the ascendancy, the people who uh, ran the parliament uh, in the elite groups in society, they were part of the High Church of Ireland. So that was an established church. It was part of the state-run church, the same one that had been established by Henry VIII. Basically. So this is the one that the British monarch is like the head of. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So that's the, that's the one that, you know, the British monarch wants everyone to be. That was kind of always the idea. Okay. Um, dissenting Protestants are Protestants who didn't want to be Catholics, but they also didn't want to join that club either. Uh, so Quakers, for instance, or Methodists, the or, Calvinists. you know, uh, well, yeah, Calvinists, Presbyterians, you know, it's all, it's all very theologically complicated. Um, okay. they're not all categories in the same way, but yeah, anyone who just doesn't identify with this high church is a dissenting Protestant. Right. And most of the, um, settlers in Ulster were dissenting Protestants. Right. So all of these groups in the 1790s are really disaffected. This is the reason why they can be dangerous. Because around the time of the Act of Union, population dynamics between England and Ireland in particular were very different than they are today. You know, remember, this is pre-famine. There were just a lot more people in Ireland. And Irish people at this stage accounted for about one third of the whole population of Britain and Ireland combined around the time of the Act of Union. So if they're all pissed off, you know, (laughs) uh, and if they're all suddenly kind of teaming up against you, they represent a really significant political force um, uh, within the islands of Britain and Ireland. Okay, so it's a threat to the regime that Mm. they're all pissed off, this three groups Mm -hmm. of Protestant ascendancy, like monarchical Protestants, sort of Bible Protestants and Catholics. Um, So just like to go through each of the groups, the Protestant ascendancy, there's actually not very many of them, right? They're this tiny Mm -hmm. elite minority of like aristocrats in Ireland, but they own all the land, you know, they have all the power, they sit in parliament, um, they're like, they're the elite and that's legally supported by the penal laws. And, you know, they're, it's, it's structural that they have more rights and power and wealth than everyone else. And they pretty much run the country by and for themselves. So why, given all that, would they be unhappy? Right. Yeah. Good question. So, yeah, even though these guys are running the Irish parliament, like exclusively, Uh um, that parliament just wasn't really enough for them. It was still very much under the thumb of Westminster. And like they built this big, beautiful parliament house on College Green. It's still there. Um, if you've ever been to Dublin, you've probably seen it. They they had a lot of pomp and circumstance, but people still used to laugh at them because the parliament was so ineffectual. And in reality, decisions made in Britain always had the last word, really. So that really annoyed these Protestant elites um, because from their point of view, like, Ireland was their country, you know? They were like little kings. Socially, they had a huge amount of power, like w- way more, really, in, in a lot of cases than their English counterparts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they weren't be able, being able to manage the government how they wanted w- because of all this British interference. Okay. So from the uh, 1780s onwards, the ascendancy started lobbying for more autonomy from Westminster in legislation. And because of the certain circumstances at that time... Westminster kind of ended up having to give in to them. So what was happening at the time? The American Revolution. Aha! 
Right, so this is what ties it all together and actually brings us into our second big faction here, the Ulster dissenters. So these descending Protestants, most mostly living in Ulster, they were largely descendants of those uh, English and Scottish colonists who'd come over in the sev- like a century before. And they were, in a way, a bit like the second cousins of colonists in America. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So both America and Ulster had been colonised at around the same time and by the same kinds of people, i.e. dissenters, British Protestants who didn't adhere to the high church. Um, We also have to remember that at the heart of both of those colonial expeditions was the idea that dissenting Protestants could practice their version of Christianity freely without restrictions from the British state. Uh, So when American colonies erupted into revolution in the 1770s, all that was tied up with this religious legacy. And the Ulster dissenters were keeping a very close eye on what was going on there. Right. So quite a lot of the colonists in America were kind of Ulster dissenters themselves, basically, right? Mm -hmm. Like there had been this big wave of immigration from Protestant Ulster directly over to colonies over in America. Yeah, yeah, like hundreds of thousands of people, absolutely. And they were hugely involved in the revolution a lot of the time. Uh, So there was increasing kind of murmurs flying around that something uh, something like the American Revolution might happen in Ireland. Like it was Mm. very analogous. Um, And in that situation, the Ulster dissenters might support the ascendancy parliament who are getting itchy for more power in some kind of coup. Wow. Okay, so very dramatic. Yeah, right. But it gets way worse. Okay, so now we come to the overwhelming population of the country who were, of course, Catholic. And these guys had been totally disempowered and disenfranchised by those penal laws. Um, And they were actively understood really as an enemy faction. And remember that they were a huge amount of people. Uh, So to say that the Catholics were disaffected, you know, is the understatement of the century. And they had their eye on a different revolution. Mm -hmm. Not the American Revolution, but the French Revolution. Right. So in 1789, you know, the Catholics in Ireland are just watching on as this other Catholic nation overthrows one of the most powerful, you know, elites in the world. And you can imagine what was going through their minds. They're like, if Versailles can fall, you know, yeah. then then our Protestant ascendancy can, or our British like colonists can. And mm. so basically Britain is facing unhappiness from all three different camps. And at the same time, all of them wanting to some sort of overthrow um, of of the status quo. And they really actually have relied on dividing these three camps in the past. But they it's absolutely imperative for them to somehow get a lid on it all at once before something goes wrong. Yeah, exactly. And there was something, there was something kind of in the works that would really just cause disaster at any moment. Uh-huh. Um At this stage, the penal laws were looking just really anachronistic. Like it was just, they couldn't keep doing this really. Uh, It seemed inevitable to everyone that at some stage, Catholics and dissenting Protestants would have to be granted full voting rights and representation in Parliament, Mm. or at least some. But that was a really dangerous prospect in a majority Catholic country. Mm -hmm. If the Ascendancy Parliament managed to get full autonomy like they wanted, and then if later on Catholics were allowed to stand for office... Suddenly, Britain would be faced with a majority Catholic parliament in Ireland. Right. And a majority Catholic parliament in Ireland would almost definitely ally with other Catholic powers in Europe. So, disaster. A disaster. Mm. From Britain's point of view, disaster. Um, mm. So, you could, you could, like, arguably, you could have an autonomous parliament in Ireland... Or you could have Catholic emancipation, but you couldn't have both. Exactly. So what's Westminster going to do? Well, first of all, it tried to kind of quieten down the ascendancy parliament. Um, You know, here they are lobbying, demanding all this stuff. So Westminster just gives away all these titles to them and honours. It's like, why don't you become like Duke of Ranala or something? (laughs) I don't know, like, you know, Lord Mountjoy. Here you go, have a title and just go away and stop bothering us. Um, But it it just doesn't work. If anything, it makes them feel even more important about themselves. Um, And then total, out, out of absolutely nowhere, you know, when everyone is looking in a different direction in 1798, a secret allegiance of Protestant, dissenter and Catholic rebels staged a huge revolt against British rule in Ireland. Right. Now, this was like really momentous. We're talking hundreds of thousands of people rising up in revolt all across the country from, you know, Mm. Wexford to Mayo to Dublin to Belfast. Like it's one of the biggest rebellions in Irish history. 
Right. And the really interesting thing about the 1798 rebellion is that it's actually it's being it's famously being led by Protestants. Yeah, right. And that's something that you just don't really hear that much in the narrative anymore. And there's yeah. a reason for that, um, because it was very deliberately written out of history uh, yeah. in Britain in subsequent years. Almost immediately after the rebellion, uh, propaganda came out, you know, to try and quieten down this news that Protestants had written, risen up. Um, so they, they don't want it to be possible for there to be like... Protestant Irish patriots. Yeah, exactly. It's a dangerous notion. Yeah. Yeah, it was a dangerous notion. They wanted to put yeah. everyone back in their box. Protestant is British, you know, Irish is Catholic. Um, right. But that, you know, that wasn't the case at all. Like, it makes perfect sense that it was dissenting Protestants in particular who were the ones rising up. Mm-hmm. Um, not only were Ulster dissenters deeply influenced by the American Revolution, um, but just loads of dissenting churches were just really embroiled in radical politics at this point in a way that Catholics weren't. Um, and a lot of those politics centered on like radical egalitarianism. So it's the same kind of movements that were behind the, um, abolition movement, for instance, uh, of slavery. It's, you know, it's all tied up with dissenting religion. Mm. Uh, so, you know, Protestants and especially dissenters, they were at the helm of this rebellion. And those rebels wanted to establish a secular Irish Republic where Catholics and dissenters would finally get full civil rights and where the Protestant ascendancy would get a shot at this independent government that they craved so much. So there was something in that for everyone. So in the words of one of these Protestant rebels, uh, Wolf Tone, their aims were, quote, to unite the whole people of Ireland to substitute the common name of Irishman in place of the denominations of Protestant, Catholic and dissenter. I mean, it's actually a very significant moment for the idea of the nation as something that isn't necessarily dependent on religion. And it's a really early example of that. So I'm guessing that this is the moment when Westminster panics. (laughs) Yeah, like they freak the hell out. And understandably so. They had been ignoring Ireland so willfully and for so long that like, it's amazing to think, but they really had no inkling that this massive rebellion, including hundreds of thousands of people, was being Mm. planned under their noses. And because they were caught so unawares, the rebels came really close to winning, like really, Mm. really close. Um, So Westminster comes up with this very hasty plan within a few years of inducting Ireland into the union with England and Scotland. Right, and it is very quick because the rebellion's 1798 and by 1801 Mm. it's a done deal. So it's very hasty. But how Mm. exactly was shoving Ireland into this union, how is it supposed to fix everything? Right, well, there's the theory and the practice. (laughs) And in theory, it would fix everything. So this was the idea. Um, It was seen as a way for Westminster to get Irish Catholics on side. I don't understand that. (laughs) If they they did away with the ascendancy parliament, Catholics weren't really a threat anymore. So Westminster promised the Irish that if the Act of Union was passed, then Catholics could have full civil rights. They could have, there would be Catholic emancipation, they could vote, they could be elected to Parliament and everything. This would be Parliament in Westminster, where they wouldn't be a majority. Exactly. This would be Parliament in Westminster. Uh, The ascendancy Parliament would be abolished. I see. Um, And that totally worked. Uh, The Catholic Church jumped headfirst into supporting the Act of Union. Um, And for Catholics, the Act of Union was seen then as a largely positive move. Um, They were all for it. Um, Because Mm -hmm. remember, Catholics had no great love for the colonial parliament anyway. Like, they were banned from that anyway. It was run by and for Protestant elites. Like, so Catholics had very little to lose um, Mm -hmm. in this situation. Uh, Secondly, then, uh, the Act of Union was seen as an efficient way of getting rid of this troublesome Protestant parliament. Um, you know, they could say to this parliament, hey, guys, we have seats for you over here in Westminster. Sorry, we're closing down your government. Um, <laughs> that's it now. And then they could keep a close eye on those um, Irish representatives mm. and there would be no risk of them getting too big for their boots anymore, basically. And thirdly, it would take away that underlying threat of political coup from Ulster dissenters. Because if there was no Irish parliament, then Ulster dissenters couldn't really threaten to, to stage like an American style revolution anymore. Okay. I'm guessing that the Protestant ascendancy were pretty unhappy at their clubhouse uh, being abolished and their parliament (laughs) being taken away and having to go over to London now. 
where they were yeah. they were they were small fish now in a big pond. Yeah, well, I mean, to say the very least. And can you imagine this? Like you said, like this is all happening in less than three years, really right. two and a half years to get this kind of done and dusted. Um, your whole world is suddenly taken away from you if you were a member of this Irish Parliament, and the whole thing was really murky. So uh, the historian Patrick M. Gagan has has noted that getting the Act of Union passed successfully, it came down to what he calls three C's, compensation, Catholic emancipation and corruption. Oh. Um, so I've, yeah, there, there are three interesting uh, motivations here. Um, compensation, in other words, like I said, paying people off, Catholic emancipation, promising Catholics to vote, and then corruption. So Gagan notes that Westminster actually had a secret slush fund specifically for paying off important people in the opposition so that oh they God. would like support the union. And once they had the Catholics on board, that's all they had to do. They basically had just had to bribe everyone else. Uh, remember, the Protestant elite were a small minority. If you bribed enough of them, you could get this through. Even more than that, like loads of paperwork around the Act of Union just went missing mysteriously. Um, and from the evidence we have, it seems like there was an, a huge cover up to prevent the public from finding out about illegality around getting the Act of Union passed. And some of those documents, it seems, have been kept secret by the British government until a few years ago. That's wild. Yeah. Okay. That's wild. It's quite in keeping, it must be said, well, a lot of colonial documents are still missing and um, still either either conveniently lost or, you know, mm. were destroyed or just kept secret still. Um now, I, I may there. be remembering um, incorrectly, but I think these documents were kept in queue. Is that where they have all those colonial documents that they that they won't let anyone see? <laughs> so queue is where they have the ones they do let people see. There are archives ah. there, which are wonderful, and you can just go in and log them out. But um, there is stuff that happens. So like things get secretly released to queue and no, no one's told. So it's only found out when someone is like randomly rummaging through, you know, these millions and millions of documents and somehow oh. stumbles upon something, realizes that it wasn't known before. So that's one thing. Another thing is misfiling. Another thing is just like not having a record of when things are. It's it's it, The whole thing is a tangled tale, Tim. It deserves a re it deserves an episode of its own, to be honest. All right. Back to this then. Um, the union, even with all this effort and pushing it through and using every means possible to get this done, it starts to be a disaster straight away. So I remember we were talking about this before, like when we were talking about Dublin. It's just that immediately after this act of union in 1801, Ireland's economy just goes into a free fall because, you know, Dublin had been... Um, quite grand and glittering, a centre of power of its own. It was a colonial capital. And suddenly all of these families, these aristocrats, hadn't a reason to be there anymore. They were to go over to London and they took their money, their resources all away. Their palaces became, you know, slums, basically, with multiple mm. families living per room. And in, in no time at all, really, Dublin had one of the highest levels of poverty and destitution of any city in Europe. Yeah, right. And, and like, you can easily imagine how this happens. Like, imagine if one day all the millionaires moved out of Monaco, like <laughs> all the rich Manhattanites, like stopped going to the Hamptons, you know, like these places that really do depend economically on the riches of rich people. And suddenly all those rich people are uh, fecked off to London. <laughs> um, <laughs> so meanwhile, as this is happening... Westminster only went and reneged on its promise to grant civil rights to Catholics. Oh, I knew this was coming. <laughs> like, I knew this was coming. The king, it turns out, didn't like the idea. Oh, <laughs> like, okay. Well, then, in that case. In that case, yeah. Maybe you should have asked him first, but fine. Um, so immediately, the Catholics, this huge you know, population of Catholics, turn against the Union. And in huge numbers. Like, they're furious. Like, they've been betrayed. And now they basically weren't ever going to be won over again because they couldn't trust promises coming out of Westminster anymore. Like they had mm. given away their country's government on the back of this promise. And it was just, you know, Westminster said, actually, no, SARS. <laughs> uh, so like, even though Catholic emancipation, it was finally granted almost 30 years later in 1829, you know, that was way too late. Like now there was a whole yeah. Catholic political front deeply hostile to the Union and they were organized and they were getting more powerful with each passing year. Right, because by breaking that promise, you've just given them a cause. You've given them yeah. a new political cause to all rally around, which mm. is, you know, follow through with your promise. 
and they gave them 30 years to to be Just angry about it. it and yeah. to practice in their campaigning and then yeah. they were successful in getting it but you've already created the political fact of this highly organized catholic class that are in opposition to you you know mm. um mm. so of course this is a horrible period um what comes after 1829 not long after is the great famine and you know of course all about the great hunger from our episode on it um one of the most glaring things about that cataclysmic event um which just to remind you there was about a million dead um one of the remarkable things was that westminster you know it it kind of demonstrated it kind of acted out its absolute unfitness to handle this situation you know um the famine itself was caused by you know this it was caused by long-term mismanagement and economic neglect you know the conditions for it were put in place by the colonial reality but the government response to it was so inadequate and destructive that in the aftermath of the famine many of the survivors believed that the actions of Westminster had actually been purposely designed to eliminate the Irish to starve everybody on purpose and that continues today as a belief. Absolutely, yeah, right. Um, and, you know, it, it is still a kind of murky area of blame, like we talked about in in our famine episode. Um, and, and, like, people didn't have a chance to forget about the famine either. The entire country around them was devastated for, like, generations afterwards. And the effects of famine didn't go away, like, at all. Uh, chronic mm. emigration continued right into the 20th century, as did food shortages. There were more mm. famines. Um, there, were more, there was more potato blight, for instance, uh, mm. in the decades afterwards. Um, and people all, all over Ireland in these years were terrified that something like the famine might happen again. Not mm. because, you know, they weren't terrified of the blight. They were terrified that Westminster just wouldn't be competent enough to do anything if mm. something like this happened again. They wouldn't be like, able to handle it. Help isn't coming. You know, mm. you're not on your yeah. side. Your interests aren't be looking af- being looked after. Um, and that sense of precarity, you know, just being on the edge all the time. Um, So, of course, you see these uh, rebel organisations taking form. You've got the Young Irelanders who rose up against British rule in 1848, very much in the the fresh aftermath of the famine. Then there's the Fenian Brotherhood in the 1860s, which was largely founded by Irish emigrants um, who had been driven out of the country during that time. So basically, less than a century on from the Act of Union, Um, its tangible benefits were few, to say the least. And on the contrary, the island had been economically devastated multiple times and the population had been actually reduced, like, substantially through starvation and emigration. And people were absolutely brimming with political sedition. So the whole thing had not gone to plan. Therefore, we come to the reasoning behind constructive unionism. Right, so full circle. Um, One of the fundamental problems with the Act of Union uh, was that it was going to be very difficult to undo. So if this had been a different kind of legislation, you know, and the government was seeing how badly it was going, you know, it could have been repealed a lot easier. But this Act of Union couldn't be repealed without consent from the House of Lords. And the House of Lords, of course, at this point, was a bunch of elderly imperial landed aristocrats. They had no interest in giving Ireland back, basically. You know, like, this is very much not in their wheelhouse. Like, um, (laughs) I mean, like, it would have been very similar to, like, you know, Boris Johnson not being the, not wanting to be the one who loses Scotland, you know, that kind of thing. They didn't want to be the ones ever to give Ireland back. Um, So over the decades, as one calamity kind of strikes after another, Instead of, like, releasing the pressure valve, the pressure just builds up in Ireland because there's no Mm. way out. Like, the union is stuck in place. And opposition towards it, instead, it just keeps growing like gas in a balloon, you know? And it began to permeate absolutely everything. Right. And, of course, like, just to remind everybody, the status in Ireland was of a low-level revolt continually. Like, you know, taxes (laughs) couldn't be collected juries wouldn't convict because they would see the court itself as an imperial institution and, you know, would side with the defendant and so on. Like, the place was in kind of upheaval. Um, And, of course, it goes both ways. So even though Ulster Protestants had been at the helm of the 1798 rebellion the previous century, 
their priorities had changed very drastically after the Act of Union, right? Yeah, so like there's a more than a little streak of irony in all this. Mm. Um, like I said, before 1801, it had been Catholics who were supporting the Union, the Act of okay. Union, it, because it was promising them eman emancipation. Um, it was Protestants, both the Ascendancy and Ulster dissenters, who mostly opposed it. Mm. And by the way, the Orange Order even opposed the Act of Union um, at the time. That's really uh, curious. That's really like that's blowing my mind. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, apparently, <laughs> apparently, it was something to do with their organization. They didn't want it to be split split around, but okay. I don't know. Um, once the Act of Union was passed, however, that whole template gets flipped on its head. Um, as we said before, Westminster had alienated all the Catholics in Ireland by not giving them civil rights. And by the time Catholics got a right to stand for office in 1829, they didn't want the union anymore. Mm. Now they wanted a home rule parliament so that they could run for office with their newly won rights in a Catholic parliament. Mm. Um, and if, that absolutely freaked out the Irish Protestants. Um, because now, if the Act of Union was repealed, um, Ulster dissenters and members of the Church of Ireland, they would become a tiny minority mm. in this country of like rabid Catholics, you know, like right. Catholics who were rapidly out for power, or that's certainly how a lot of them would have seen it. Um, so in every way, the union reconsolidated old religious divisions. Um, you know, both groups were forming their politics around this one deeply divisive, totemic piece of legislation. So now unionist politics, everything to do with staying in the union, it was always pandering now to Protestant concerns, while anti-union sentiment was more and more built around Catholic ambition. Because now, if a parliament was to be in Ireland again, then now that Catholics have civil rights, it would be majority Catholic one. And that's just very scary. So even though Protestants in Ireland had become deeply invested in the idea of the Union by the end of the 19th century. Um, does, could it be true, Tim, that a lot of this was sort of built on fear? So it's not like, oh, this is brilliant, we love this. It's it's not about the tangible benefits. It's like the fear of the alternative. Yeah, I suppose it's I suppose it's a mixture of a whole lot of things. But, you know, mm -hmm. fear is way too prominent in these motivations okay. to make it healthy. You, you know, <laughs> like, like it's, it, it was only after the famine that Westminster kind of saw this, like for what it was, and decided to change its approach. You know, they saw this too. They said, we can't just keep the union going through fear. Um, mm -hmm. So when the Liberal Party came to power, um, they concluded that the best thing to do if the union was ever going to survive, was that they were just going to have to try and convince Irish people to like it. What a crazy idea. How did they ever come up with that one? <laughs> yeah, think, thinking way outside the box here, Naomi. <laughs> it took them long enough, guys. Your starvation didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe everyone involved should actually enjoy it. Um, I mean, and I love also how like the 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 motivation for this isn't just because they want people to be happy; it's because they want them to stop revolting. But um, <laughs> so yeah, the the main idea here is to take the wind out of the sails of Irish nationalism. It's not really about making people happy; it's about giving Irish nationalism nothing to complain about. That was the idea, oh. and giving Irish people a clear, visible stake in the union that they could touch and say, I have this because of the union. Mm. Now, one of the most prolific figures in all this was the Liberal Prime Minister, uh, William Gladstone, mm. um, who's famous for his uh, support of Irish Home Rule, actually. Um, and just to illustrate his comments uh, about this, Naomi, I've got a great quote for you here. Uh, this was noted down by another politician called Evelyn Ashley uh, in mm -hmm. 1868. And this is the moment when Ashley and Gladstone are both in the garden and Gladstone is cutting down trees and he receives a telegram telling him for the very first time that he's going to be prime minister. Do you want to read the oh. quote, Naomi? Oh, yes, of course. I'll read this. Okay. So this is the description of it. He took the telegram, opened it and read it, then handed it to me. I said nothing, but waited while the well-directed blows resounded in regular cadence. After a few minutes, the blows ceased and Mr. Gladstone, resting on the handle of his axe, looked up and with a deep earnestness in his voice and great intensity in his face, exclaimed, My mission is to pacify Ireland. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's so weird okay so he's chopping down a tree he doesn't uh, react he has like a delayed reaction he takes mm -hmm. the telegram he goes back to chopping on the tree and then he with a big intense face looks up and says 
my mission is to pacify our it's almost threatening (laughs) it's almost threatening yeah it's certainly very melodramatic um i'd love to know if you know if it was true but it's a great piece of um it's a great piece of mythology anyway um so yeah but this was how he was seen anyway like this was his big thing he was going to fix ireland and gladstone himself like i said was no big fan of the act of union he he later went on to support home rule uh in ireland um mm. but whatever the case in the 1860s and 70s he realized that the first step in quote unquote pacifying Ireland um, was to start pushing through reforms to make Irish people's lives better. So one thing he does is to disestablish the Protestant Church of Ireland, which is a huge deal, by the way. Um, um, but the reason he was doing it uh, what meant that Catholics no longer had to pay state official church taxes to the Protestant Church. I can't believe they were having to do that all along. Crazy. Mm, And no one thought of like stopping that arrangement. It's like, oh, you've got all these angry Catholics. Maybe stop taxing them to pay to this minority church that only the aristocrats go to. But anyway, um, so that was a symbolic move, uh, but also practical uh, because those church taxes had been very hated and actually, you know, a significant burden on the starving peasants during the famine. And um, here's one for pub quizzes. Uh, This moment in time uh, gives us one of the longest words in the English dictionary, which is anti-disestablishmentarianism. So <laughs> that is those who are opposed to the act of disestablishing the official Church of Ireland. But, and you, do you know, Naomi, that's one of the first words I ever heard you say. Is that true? That's It is. <laughs> Why did I say anti-disestablishmentarianism to you? I, d- I do not know. I do not know. But you used it very <laughs> casually and it was... <laughs> Somebody else casually mentioned that it was the longest word in the dictionary. I think we were in university together. So yeah, good, you know, good first impression there. (laughs) (laughs) I remember my first interaction with you being about the meaning of the word Barna. Um, I Ah. don't know. I said, where are you from? And you were like, Galway. And I was like, oh, and you were like, well, Barna. And I was like, doesn't that mean like gap? And you were like, yes. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Right, so back to uh, back to what we were talking about. Uh, the next thing uh, Gladstone does is he introduces a secret ballot in voting for the first time. Re- remember that Catholics in Ireland were also allowed to vote now. They had been for about 30 years. Okay, so this is a game changer um, in any political scenario, but I imagine especially so in such a volatile political climate. Um, but I'm guessing it's not quite enough to get Irish Catholics to vote for unionist representatives. No, yeah, like not in a long shot. And I don't think Gladstone expected them to. Um, in fact, uh, this secret ballot voting kind of helped on a huge nationalist resurgence. Mm. Um, within a few years uh, after this, the Irish Parliamentary Party rose to become the most powerful party party in Ireland. And this party had one aim. I'll give you three guesses, Naomi. To repeal the Act of Union. 10 out of 10, exactly. <laughs> and support support for this party was through the roof. Um, in the 1885 general election, it won 85 out of the 103 Irish seats in the UK House of Commons, which means that more or less every constituency in Ireland outside Protestant Ulster and middle-class Dublin was now calling for home rule. Oh my gosh, 85 mm. out of 103 that's no. enormous. So um, Gladstone did kind of rehabilitate the image of the Westminster government then, or at least, you know, people must have seen him as not too bad. But they still were very clear in what they wanted, which was they didn't want to be in that Westminster Parliament at all. They wanted their own Parliament. and They wanted a repeal of the Union. Yeah, right. So a lot more is going to have to be done. And, um, you know, constructive unionism uh, policies start coming in in force. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you've listened to our episode on the housing crisis, listeners, you'll remember that at around this point in the 1880s, uh, one of the big drivers of nationalist politics was the land war. Um, nationalist mm-hmm. leaders, uh, in a nutshell, were organising tenant farmers in rent strikes against these big colonial landowners and the tenant farmers were demanding you know in in huge numbers that the land be sold back to them back to the farmers who lived on it at cost Uh price and uh, like in every way that was a brilliant piece of political theater it garnered international media attention at the time much to the embarrassment of britain Um, and it was also a way for irish nationalists to consolidate a lot of grassroots support you know they were Right. Basically saying, like, if you vote for us, farmer, um, all this land hoarded by those evil elites could be yours, you know, so there's I something see. in it for the farmers. I see. It's just not an issue where 
Westminster is going to come off very well, right? Like, mm. you know, what what can they do? Can they be like, we're the pro-exploitative arist- aristocrat faction? You know, yeah. like they can hardly, like, what position are they going to take on it? Um, like that way they would just lose even more faith with all of those millions of uh, tenant voters. Yeah, right. Like there, nobody in Britain or in Ireland was under any illusion that Irish landowners were some kind of upstanding, righteous, you know, got there because they worked hard for a Protestant elite. Like that, <laughs> that's not the image they had. They were known to be exploitative. Everyone knew that they were abusive. Half of them were absentee. They had done a terrible job. They had like ended up kind of facilitating starvation for, yeah. for decades. So yeah, it you know, it was going to look really bad for Westminster to try and defend these guys. Um, so instead, two successive chief secretaries of Ireland around this time decided to take the opposite tack. Um, chief secretary, by the way, was a little bit like being a British secretary of state for Ireland at this point. Okay. Um, so these guys were two upper class guys, Arthur and Gerald Balfour. Uh, so it was pretty urgent for these guys, Balfours, to start demonstrating the benefits of the union in Ireland. Um, so instead of resisting these nationalist demands in the land war, the Balfours just totally gave in to them. They actually like offered the land to the tenants. They said, no, mm-hmm. take it. That's fine. We'll sell it to you um, and we'll give you government assistance. So over this time, actually, they facilitated a huge transfer of land. Uh, before 1870, only about 3% of all farmers in Ireland actually owned the land that they worked on. Mm-hmm. And by 1909, that number was 97%. So almost completely wow. reversed. Whoa, and that's in a relatively short space of time. Um, So these millions of tenants now had land. They had their land. Um, And they they actually saw, you know, Westminster was helping them to get it. The idea was this kind of removes... It, take, it takes away the incentive for all those tenant farmers to be involved with national politics at all. And they did loads of stuff like this. Um, they constructed labourer cottages, about 40,000 labourer cottages, to take people out of the hovels that they were living in. They were like, here, have mm. a house, basically. You know, mm. it was a really huge effort. Um, and it was very much just trying to give Irish people a stake. You know, these Irish people who bought that land could stand in their field and say, Thank you, Union. Like, that was the idea. Here is what Gerald Balfour wrote about this whole thing. Um, This was published in 1911. He wrote, It should never be forgotten that the maintenance of the legislative union between Ireland and Great Britain is defended by Unionists no less in the interests of Ireland than in that of the United Kingdom and of the Empire. That the ills from which Ireland has admittedly suffered in the past, and for which she still suffers, though diminishing in nature, are economic and social rather than political. Unionists also believe that economic and social conditions in Ireland can be more effectively dealt with under the existing political constitution than under any form of home rule. Ireland is a poor country and needs the financial resources which only the imperial parliament can provide. I see. So it's very paternalistic. It's like, this is for your own good, Ireland. Mm-hmm. Things have, We admit to some mistakes. You know, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, you just would be much worse off by yourselves. Um, so essentially, they're like, you know, home rule won't fix this. And if the Irish accept that their problems are economic rather than political, it would seem logical that a huge economic powerhouse like Britain is better able to fix them than a home rule parliament in Dublin. That's the idea. And like we definitely can see echoes of this kind of rhetoric, right, in in current day uh, independence debates. Absolutely. Yeah, (laughs) it's so interesting. Like if you think about the recent Scottish referendum on independence in 2014, uh, Westminster used more or less the same arguments, right? Like, mm-hmm. things might not be perfect, but they'll be much worse for you without us uh, here to help you. Um, and, you know, like, thinking back to that Scottish referendum, there were warnings that, like, Scotland wouldn't be able to use the pound sterling anymore, that they'd lose, like, funding for public services, that certain British shops would, like, up and leave Scotland, things like that. And, of course, in 2014, those arguments ultimately worked. Uh, Scotland voted to remain in the Union in that referendum. Mm. Uh, but there's a big contrast here. Like, the kind of issues on which the 2014 Scottish referendum was built around would probably have seemed, like, laughably tri- trivial in Ireland uh, in 1911. Like, yes, I, like, you had all these last-minute gestures of constructive unionism. Um, but 
All those gestures were just a drop in the ocean when it came to addressing, like, the sheer chaos that belonging to the Union had caused uh, in Ireland. Like, the majority of Irish people at this stage were not worried about having to use a new currency, like, the economy was already in ruins. Like, they were not worried about losing public services. Like, there were hardly any to to begin with, because infrastructure had been so underdeveloped for a century. Like, this is not the level on which they were thinking. They were worried about things like... When was Westminster going to mess up again and leave them to starve to death? Or, like, Mm -hmm. when were the mass evictions going to return? Like, the British didn't have a leg to stand on uh, in this situation. Like, Mm -hmm. Ireland was in in literal ruin. Um, Not only that, but, like, unionists like Balfour were appealing to a sense of, like, quote-unquote equal partnership on which the union was theoretically built on. But, like, that was an equal partnership that very few Irish people had actually experienced. Mm -hmm. Like, this is at a time, let's not forget, when British universities were publishing papers about why the Irish were a biologically inferior race. Like, British magazines were publishing caricatures of Irish people as gorillas and pigs or as, like, subhuman Frankensteins who were so congenitally stupid that they couldn't see how much better British civilization was uh, than their own. Uh, British-funded schools, of course, at the time, they were actively trying to eliminate the language that was being spoken by the majority of the population, and they were succeeding. You know, and this wasn't just, like, an attitude towards Catholics. Like, Protestants and Catholics alike in Ireland were more or less, like, institutionally derided in Britain as a troublesome mob of, like, thick paddies. Mm -hmm. So when you consider that context, like, all the colleges of science and agrarian reforms in the world, all the threats that the economy might be worse without the union, you know, that was all ringing, going to ring very hollow uh, in Ireland. It's going to be very difficult to convince the majority in Ireland that uh, the union was actually on their side. Mm. So at the end of the day, constructive unionism was a lost cause. Just as it hit its peak, Westminster more or less admitted that all of this was too little, too late, And within a few years, um, from 1914, Britain gave in to Ireland's demands for home rule. And before they could even see that through, Ireland had already broken out into an armed revolution and the Irish Free State succeeded from the Union uh, in 1922, of course. So listen, (laughs) we've spent a lot of time on this, I'm aware. But I think it is important to, to lay out what the Union has meant on this island for a few reasons. Like, firstly... I think that looking back, we can see that the Union was just never a good fit for Ireland. Like, it was hastily conceived, it was politically, like, incongruous, and it ended up making a bad situation ten times worse. Uh, Secondly, um, since the moment the Act of Union was passed, ironically, considering, like, the grand ideas behind it, it mostly succeeded in sowing division. Like, a lot of division has come from this Act of, quote-unquote, Union. And thirdly, that in order for the Union to survive, it's always relied on throwing at least one cultural group in Ireland under the bus. Like, it it has shown that maintaining political control of the island of Ireland was consistently more important to Westminster than the well-being of the people who lived there, including Britain's most ardent ardent supporters on the island uh, in Ulster. Which brings us to the most important point of all, that, of course, the Union still exists. Um, After Irish independence in 1922, um, it disappeared in the Free State, but Northern Ireland remained under UK jurisdiction and the Union has has continued there ever since. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, adding the last century of Northern Irish history to the track record of the Union is hardly a glowing advertisement uh, for its success. Uh, but, of course, the Union as it exists in Northern Ireland today has been considerably transformed, especially in the last 20 years, by the compromises of the Good Friday Agreement. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, the Good Friday Agreement, I suppose, gave the Union the flexibility that it was always missing, that had always made it into that you know pressure chamber. Um, and the compromises that it introduced, it, in many ways, it, it made the long-term survival of the Union in Northern Ireland a lot more feasible like in the sense that it allowed everyone in the territory to make their peace with it, you know, finally, much more easily at least. Um, Which makes it all the more astounding, Naomi, that this very fragile link uh, with Britain has in the last four years been treated so cavalierly and almost with contempt at times uh, by the Tory government. 
We catch up to the current moment in part two of the season four finale. We'll post the link in the episode notes.